When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, economic theory and the digital economy. How much are we trying to apply theory developed for production-based economies on economies driven by knowledge? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Look, if you look at almost uh, all conventional economic theories, they all revolve around economies where people make stuff, physical stuff, like the, the labour theory of value. We look at how much it costs to make things based on people and energy and, uh, and, and distribution costs. But in the knowledge-based economy, those costs are relatively small, but we charge a lot for knowledge. So doesn't that turn a lot of economic theory on its head? And how can an economy survive if it doesn't make anything physical? Well, Steve, I mean, we need food and furniture and we need cars. But a lot of people these days are employed not doing that. They are employed in this knowledge-based economy, producing nothing physical. It's the, it's the tangible versus the intangible. So what does that mean for economics? Well, the funny thing is economics is already standing on its head because the the arguments that economists make about how firms produce are complete bunk and empirically have been false uh, ever since capitalism came along, let alone economic theory about capitalism came along because an essential part of the, the way they analyse the cost of producing a physical item is to say that you have a sick, fixed amount of capital uh, and you vary the amount of labour you're applying to that capital as demand rises, you have more workers per machine. And then at some point, you get an ideal ratio of workers to machines and then with increased demand, and, and they always see us being in the, in the area where you're in, when, where you're past that point in terms of the level of demand, uh, the extra additional worker added to the machines adds less output than the previous worker. So you have what's called diminishing marginal productivity. You're paying the same wage to the workers. They're producing less output per unit. Therefore, the costs rise, so you have rising marginal cost. It's neat, it's plausible, and it's complete and absolute bullshit. <laughs> um, and if you look at what firms actually do, any sensible firm, and in fact, funny, when, when, when industrialists had this theory explained to them by researchers who were critical of the theoretical argument looking for empirical data about it, um, they literally thought that economists were, were, were anti-capitalist. Because they're saying that they must be thinking, uh, must think a, a businessman a, a reactionary, um, anti-progressive to believe we'd actually manage our factories this way. So what you do if you if you if you're a sensible capitalist, if you have ten machines, uh, and it's the, the ideal work ratio of ten workers per machine, and you have enough demand to just turn one of the machines on, you hire ten workers. You don't hire, you don't turn on the, the second machine until you get up to pretty much another 10 workers being needed, et cetera, et cetera. So the machines remain idle until they're needed. Um, 
And, and when you design your factory, you design it so that when it's working at absolute full capacity, it's at its most efficient level. And that means that consequently, the, your, your output per worker tends to be pretty much constant or indeed rising as the factory approaches full capacity. That translates into, it's like, like, like in, in rising marginal productivity and therefore falling marginal cost. Now, when firms are surveyed about this, and there have been something like about there's been at least 20 surveys done every last one of them has got a result of at least 89 percent and normally 95 percent of firms saying they have constant or falling marginal cost well you now, t- you turn that's, that's the yeah you turn on that second machine uh when you've got more than 10 uh more than 10 workers because you, mm. you in the hope that you're going to meet the demand to meet the full capacity of that second machine you're still going to need to turn it on though aren't you uh, because you're going to because you're going to have that growth curve reaching up to the point where you meet that, yeah, but f- that the full engineers demand. would have designed the factory so that is the, is the number of machines being turned on uh, rises then the the uh, air conditioning costs for the factory fall I mean, this is the thing. Mm. Engineers, thank God engineers design factories, not bloody economists, because <laughs> they do design them sensibly to reach, as they've said themselves many times, maximum efficiency at or near full capacity. And then the, the, the role of the, the management is to decide when to build the next factory. If you start to approach that point of full capacity, then you, you go to build another factory later. And it, it's important to have that spare capacity. It's not wasted because you're in a competitive environment where you have you know, rivals selling similar but different goods to yours. If they stuff up uh, with a product, product laws, if somebody brings out an Edsel, for example, uh, or if they have a, a failure in the, in the hardware so the Goodyear tyres start failing, uh, then you want Firestone to have the capacity to bump up production immediately to take up that vacancy and then squeeze out its competitor. So there's good industrial and good uh, marketing reasons why firms have ex- spare capacity, do not use all their capital in one time, and therefore face falling marginal cost. But So that what I'm saying is that the economic theory is wrong to begin with and now what you're throwing in as you talk about the digital economy mm. is that you have things which are produced with effectively zero marginal cost. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I make a piece a piece of software. It's all sales from there uh, here on in. I just need to uh, to maximise my by my returns by selling as many as possible. It's not going to cost me any more to, to produce it. Well, there are there are other parts. Well, I mean, any software package has bugs. Speaking as an expert in, in designing software, sure. And uh, but those got, those costs apply whether you've sold ten or whether you've sold no, ten the, million. You, you, you have to have a larger call centre. You've got to train mm. more staff about mm. it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I have a software package, Minsky, as you know, uh, which has a call centre of one, a programmer of one, a bug tester of one, and they're all the same person. Yeah. Um, when you start expanding, then you have a you you have to put a hierarchy together. You have a call centre in one location usual off-sourcing crap would normally be used by most of them. Um, and you, you therefore have – you do have some marginal cost right. with, with expanding. It, but, but, but you're talking a much smaller yeah. percentage of, of your total revenue is going well, on. Yeah, you think this, in this case, again, the one thing that economists found when they asked industrialists about how do they manage their companies, they expected them to understand the ideas of fixed and, and, and variable costs and even Alan Blinder, 1999, asking about prices, uh, a major study covering 15% of America's GDP, um, he thought the same thing. And he found when his PhD students went along interviewing people face-to-face to remove any confusion about the, the answers and the questions, they said that most of them didn't, even have, didn't have a real concept of fixed versus variable costs. 
But when you look at things like software, the, the fixed costs are by far your development costs. And you have to have a large, uh, you know, there's a, a large period of working out the feasibility of a software package. Uh, there's then getting enough money to finance it. You have huge financing costs. The venture capital costs in software can be huge. Um, and then you've got to market the whole damn thing. All these are big costs. But then once you've got it actually established and selling, like they take, for example, the classic being Microsoft Orifice. Pardon me, I met at Norris Microsoft Office. <laughs> um, that, that markets itself. And in that sense, then you have a very low level of constant, constant per unit marginal cost as you have to expand your call centers as more people become victims. Pardon me, I meant customers. I, I'm not even aware that they had a call center to uh, solve. I thought you had to fix all the problems you with Microsoft Office I'm yourself. I'm having great fun right now with Microsoft <laughs> on my big my, my big laptop. There's the Alienware thing. I've got a 32 gig of RAM. The bastard. Uh, every time I log in, we are unable to log you into your account, right. and everything goes back to default bloody settings. And I'm pulling what left I've got left of my hair out. And can I call anybody to ask about it? You click up. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. You get caught in that bloody infinite loop of the getting to the effects. Fax sounds a bit like another word. Well, this uh, brings me okay. nicely onto my next yeah. question, really, because if it's so yeah. bad, why I've is... I've got facts. I've this... been faxed by Microsoft, yeah. <laughs> if it's so bad, why is a competitor not there? And this brings up the whole question of scale in this, uh, in this digital economy. How come companies become so dominant and there isn't somebody taking on Microsoft Orifice and uh, providing an alternative? Well, that again comes down to the the the, the uh, first, not the first mover advantage, because there are many many packages before Microsoft came along. But once you've got dominance in an area like that, you can basically get the same situation that IBM used to operate under, which was quote unquote nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Mm. And I used to say yes, but somebody should have, because when you looked at their hardware versus what was around at the time with things like Hewlett Packard and so on, and even some of the the Burroughs and Unisys stuff. There was better stuff out there, but just once they've got that marketing presence, everybody goes with that particular brand. And now, of course, it's Microsoft um, uh, that, that, that everybody, everybody goes and buys. So you get a dominance, you get a monopoly position coming out of that, even though there's far better software for word processing than Word, far better software than, than access for databases. The access has almost killed the database industry rather than rather than providing a better alternative. So there's many, many things like that that mean you get a position of dominance and it's incredibly hard to shake you. And and that, again, neoclassical economists would analyse in a sort of a you know, idea of a monopoly uh, setting a higher price and selling, a, low, and, uh, selling a, a lower volume than the market would actually want. It's more about just getting a stifling the innovation that leads to new and better programs. Well, and free trade agreements don't help with this either, do they? Because we tend to think of free trade agreements covering the tangibles rather than the intangibles. But then if we look at, uh, you know, a lot of the of what's happening now between the United States and China, for example, a lot of that is related to the intangibles. It's related to uh, IP protection. And if we looked at the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a big chunk of that uh, was trying to stop uh, from the US side before they pulled out, was trying to stop copyright theft in Australia, for example. Uh, so if, yeah, I, if, yeah. I, if I protect my country's IP, then, um, you know, my companies can expand their sales with relatively little cost to, to the rest of the world. Uh, so it, it's sort of like a, it, a free trade agreement becomes a way of protecting asset values, doesn't it, really? Exactly. exactly. The, the classic in American cases, literally, and I love this, mate, literally known as the Mickey Mouse Clause. Mm. You know what the Mickey Mouse Clause is? 
Well, it's to, obviously related to making sure no one copies Mickey Mouse. And, Indeed. Uh, Every time Mickey Mouse is about to go out of copyright, uh, Walt Disney's companies and uh, go and lobby the uh, relevant senators and get the length of copyright extended. So it used to be, I think, that the, the rule for, for copyright used to be the life of the creator plus 21 years or 17 years. And I think that's quite reasonable. That mm. means that you, you, you have to come up with a new idea, like, like you know, even, even like Mickey Mouse, um, you get, you know, as an author, you got the, the rights to a book as well. And then after a certain number of years, you're, you, you know, you're taking care of your heirs, et cetera. Uh, but after a certain number of years, bang, it goes out of copyright. Now, that should be the rule. Americans, because they're hanging on to this control of digital uh, and, and, and brand and trade brand, trademark. Uh, uh, because they're so dominant at it. They've extended it to 75 years. Now, screw that. If I go, hello, Pluto, uh, I'm going to get a letter now, am I? It's uh, for breach of Mate, copyright. You just, ruined, you just ruined our commercial venture. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hopefully they haven't listened this far. So <laughs> companies... I, I actually got... I got a, on one of my YouTube channels, I had a bit of an exact of uh, Giannis Varoufakis answering a, a um, household, the government's household question for the audience in um, BBC Question Time, and I got, a, I got a copyright query over that. Yeah. So... Um, so I'm just wondering where this takes us then, if we've got, because it becomes, again, this case of if you dominate and then you've got your government behind you helping you dominate because they want to protect, they see your business as a as an asset that's worth protecting, um, then you're getting to a situation where as these companies become so dominant, what help hope have other economies got like australia yeah, australia, australia what does yeah. australia produce if australia didn't have oil what the hell would it make its money from because it's not anywhere in the digital space no and it's actually shot itself on the foot with that stupid rule about putting in a backdoor to software courtesy of the five eyes spies mm. network not wanting us to be able to talk privately um so yeah it, it is a major problem and again, economic theory is misleading. It takes you away from the important thing because the important thing here is how do you achieve innovation? The, the, the one, the, the out, outstandingly important thing about capitalism that makes it a desirable social system is the extent to which it encourages innovation. Now, you can stuff that up by things like the TPP and the copyright controls that the Americans put in place where the whole idea is to, once you've got an advantage, to stifle anybody else getting in there. So I would be rewriting all these things to say, what can we do in, in such a way that we reward innovation but also encourage it? And that things like patenting uh, are essential to rewarding innovation, but equally in ending patenting after a certain length of time is essential to encouraging it to happen again. Yeah, and it, and it becomes a question, doesn't it, of just what can you patent as well? Because you have those mm. crazy things where, you know, if you swipe a mobile phone in a particular way, then that's a, a patent. Most people would say, well, given the, you know this sort of device, it's the most natural behavior. So it's it's that there's a difficulty, isn't there, in defining exactly well, what you can protect. I'm actually going through that right now, I've got to say. Hopefully I'll be able to tell people about it sometime in the next year or so, but I'm designing a new software package, which is a totally unique interface for data. And I'm facing the challenge that, to some extent, having courts for, for a while started to defend things like having a, a scroll, scroll bar as, as, a, as a look and feel and preventing others from having scroll bars. That's exactly what you don't want. 
but you do want for a while the person who produces scroll bars to get uh, royalty payments from those who use scroll bars. Mm. Uh, now, I'm not, I've not invented a scroll bar, but I've invented something which makes it much easier to na- navigate multidimensional data. And I want to get some money out of that for a while. I want it to be able to finance me fighting in neoclassical economics with decent revenue rather than shit revenue, as I've been doing for the last 45 years. Um, but you then want that look and feel to be something others can use and pay a license fee for some length of time after which the um, the copyright will expire for the legitimate reason that you want to give somebody else a chance to innovate. Uh, but that hasn't at all been the way this stuff has been done. It's all in, in particularly with the with the American fetish for for, league, for you know suing the ass of anybody who moves in your direction and um, other ways of fighting if you get too close. Uh, we need to get away from that and enable innovation. Now, companies which have got the highest turnover in the world are still basically focused on tangibles. So there's Walmart, obviously a retailer selling stuff. You've got uh, the Chinese state grid. So you've got utilities, you've got oil companies, you've got car companies. They're the sorts of companies that make up the top 10 for the companies with the highest turnover. But the most profitable companies in the world, well, number one is Apple. Uh, Number two is Berkshire Hathaway. So you've got the finance sector moving in there. Most of them, you know, most of their money is coming from from services. So this is a big problem as well isn't it you know that we've got uh, the situation where you know the high turnover companies which also are, are, are tend to be companies that employ lots of people like walmart versus the companies which are actually making the biggest margins are making those margins because they're not employing people so we have this this big issue of what does everyone do now conventional economics that say well look if you lose your job that's fine you just get a job creating something else but that can't mm-hmm. go on forever can it no, it can't. This is the, I mean, this is the important issue about the technology development we're seeing right now, where a whole lot of jobs, which were menial jobs, in various ways. I mean, there's some level of skill needed, but not, uh, not, not uh, professional intelligence. Though, it, in some, even some jobs involving professional intelligence are now being taken over by software. Um, so, mm. if you look at like what are called deep neural networks now, in terms of diagnostics. Uh, it's getting to the stage where you're better off going to to a virtual doctor and detailing your symptoms uh, because they can draw on an enormous database and of both symptoms and and uh, and cases. They're better at di- they're going to be better at diagnostics than most doctors ninety ninety nine percent of the time. So there's a whole range of areas where the need for labour to get work. Uh, to, to get to it to produce stuff is going to disappear and we have to i think really be facing ourselves in a world where that happens we want to have a world where innovation still takes place but where you still have a decent standard of living for everybody and given the extent to which it's possible to produce without labor now and will become even more so in future uh the, we we have a potential for capitalism to turn into a like a, a, even worse than a feudal system. That's why I keep on going back to the example of the Hunger Games. Uh, well, we simply need to keep most of the population quiet uh, while the rest of them can, can enjoy the bounty generated by the ownership of capital and the machinery that transforms energy into useful work, which is what is the ultimate source of GDP. Yeah. Well, now, of course, the big thing to own is data. Uh, it, it, you know, that's the, 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 the key constituent of the knowledge economy and Google and the like are doing very well at gathering it and using it. Uh, and uh, th- that sort of stifles innovation if you need that data and you haven't got it because Google's got it. But it, of course, it's our data. It's our behavior, isn't it, that they're making money out of. I didn't see Adam Smith mentioning that in The Wealth of Nations, but it's a it's a whole new form of monopoly, isn't it, that we don't seem to have any control over. Well, that's again, what, like the, I haven't made a great deal of use of it yet, but uh, Bernard uh, Icke, um, 
who's uh, Brendan Ike, pardon me, who invented JavaScript and is a very nice man, I might say, uh, a friend of mine. And uh, uh, he has developed a new browser he calls Brave. And the idea of Brave is that rather than you, uh, the uh, Google making the money out of you, you look clicking on ads, you'll make the money out of you clicking on ads because you get various points rewarded back to you for, for visiting particular sites. And uh, so Brendan is trying to address that. And I hope Brave actually manages to break into the into the browser market and take it over because that is designed the right way, as you say. But yeah, most of it is about getting a monopoly and hanging onto it. And Google's made an absolute fortune out of that. Yeah, and it's, it's also it's not just the browser; it's everything else that Google has control over. So it's your Google device at home, it's Google Maps, it's how they all work together. That's the problem, and we become so dependent on it, uh, and uh, and you know we give away so much for the for the convenience of it. But well, I think at the same time, there's some brilliant stuff. I mean, I couldn't imagine life without Google Maps these days. And uh, yeah, and, and and Google as a search engine was far superior to Yahoo when it when it first came out, and has maintained that ascendancy. So there's extremely good stuff that's come out of this. But the th- point is, at some point, you want to say, okay, there should be a transition of this from being closed source to open source. There should be some way that we say what we want. You you have to give somebody an advantage for them to put in the effort that's necessary to do this large-scale innovation we see in, in things like Google and uh, like you know, the deep brain work and so on. Uh, that, that has to be there. And then Bill Janeway does a very good job of explaining that in doing innovation, doing capitalism in the innovation economy. Um, but at the same time, you have to break that as a control after there's been a reasonable length of time for the people who did that innovation to reap the rewards, and then it becomes open source, becomes a free, free available to everybody. We still haven't struck that balance properly, and the American legal system in particular is making sure we'll never get there. Well, I mean, the, on all of these levels that we've talked about, so, for example, the fact that people are losing their jobs because they're being replaced by uh, artificial intelligence, the fact that uh, data is driving so much now and it's difficult for uh, it's difficult for people to, to replicate that, and then the fact that uh, large com- big companies are, are are becoming monopolies in in this space, a relatively small number of monopolies, which is which will almost certainly be stifling innovation. With, I mean, all th- those three things alone are big things which are really influencing society today. And I, I look at conventional economic theory and says it's got nothing to do with any of this. And in fact, we, we don't seem to be approaching it in any way or trying to tackle it in any way because we still read those old economics textbooks. Yeah, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, the, one of the main dangers capitalism faces is economics. And it's not the Marxists, it's not the lefties, it's the mainstream because they, they've, they, when you look at how it evolved, uh, neoclassical economics began effectively with the Corno, uh, Corno's model of, uh, of uh, oligopoly. This is a, a mathematical exercise in, uh, in differential equations back in the early 1800s. And then you had uh, Jean-Baptiste Say, who was a great champion of the utilitarian uh, neoclassical, what became neoclassical theory approach. But he was a minority. And the dominant school was the classical school of economics, which even though it screwed up by getting energy wrong, courtesy of Adam Smith, uh, misinterpreting and, 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 and not understanding the importance of the physiocratic and focus upon, upon uh, land and energy, uh, it was still a more realistic model of capitalism than the, the neoclassical. Along comes Marx and uses the labour theory of values and argument for the overthrow of capitalism. And pretty much at that point, 
you had a, a suppression of classical school and a rise of the neoclassical school. So within about a 20-year period, you went from the classical objective theory of value approach being wiped out and taken over by the neoclassical school, uh, which at, when, it, when it happened back in the 1870s, it was a legitimate um, alternative way of thinking about capitalism. You could say, okay, it makes sense. Yes, it does make sense to say maybe utility is the basis of value rather than effort. It does make sense to say maybe marginal cost rises, et cetera, et cetera, yada, yada, yada. But every time that they uh, push themselves trying to establish one of their foundations or to, to push it further, they got to a logical conundrum where they were got forced to be wrong and they stuck with the belief system rather than with uh, saying, oh, dear, we need to revise our, our attitudes here somewhat. And what they've ended up doing is supporting capitalism and championing it for features it doesn't have. The whole idea, they think, that capitalism's main feature is the capacity to reach equilibrium. Give me a bloody break. Its main feature is how it handles disequilibrium, how it channels change. And, 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 and talking about the uh, totally ignoring the distribution of income, that's one of the dangers mm. of the financial sector. That's another one of the dangers. All this stuff is left out of mainstream economics, so it's no wonder uh, it's helping destroy capitalism. And, you know, we don't seem to be tackling those big issues that uh, a lot of it is driven by data these days. So mm. competition, privacy, democracy, security, uh, not to mention, you know, this, this ability to concentrate wealth in the hands of a small number of people who run the, the companies that are doing this. Uh, and it doesn't seem any way of controlling it or certainly any policy. China, of course, is, uh, approaches it all through a massive firewall. The US probably doesn't need to do that to keep control because most of the companies we're concerned about actually come from the United States. The UK and Europe really doesn't have very much at all in the way of uh, d data products, uh, just a lot of people to be taken advantage of. It, this doesn't sound very sustainable in the, in the long term. It looks like, uh, well, China is going to block itself out. The United States is going to take control. And it's not just control of the, the economy. It does become control of uh, democracy and, uh, you know, and, and large parts of society. Don't know how you yeah. stop it. Yeah, I mean, it's much, much too complicated for a textbook. Uh, it's particularly a mainstream textbook. But things like the 5G network, for example, what we're seeing over Huawei right now, um, that, that there are legitimate reasons why it's possible that Huawei could be a spying unit for the, um, for the Chinese government. At the same time, Australia completely blows that case out of the water by passing laws at the behest of the IT industry, uh, the, the, the security uh, forces rather, that yeah. the IT industry has to put backdoors in its bloody software so that the, the spooks can, can check and see what messages are being passed around to, to catch those, you know, those terrorists dopping and keen in their private conversations. Um, so, yeah, we have a real mess. They could just and economic theories, but anything but a way of being able to resolve it. They could just pay, and they could listen into these uh, private conversations. That'd be the true. Cheap, the cheap that. I yeah, mean, they could just become five, a subscriber. A couple of customers. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but I mean, that's I guess that's the final point. Does is the answer through all of this regulation? Do we need more heavy-handed regulation? Like we, you know, Europe introduced the GDPR, for example, which allowed us supposedly to see what data companies have got on us. Um, but so what? I doubt many people have really looked at it um mm. or do we just accept you know that, that this this new age makes life easier and see where it takes us I, i'm just a bit worried that uh you know at any level we don't seem to be addressing it no, no i think i mean you, you, capitalism as a pure market system is a, is, a, is a fantasy 
you always have a state in there and the state, of course, has a role in creating money, as I frequently argue, but it's also got a, a, a case in, in creating a you know, the, 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 the framework in which capitalism operates. And again, that's why I think that, that Andrew Schoenfeld book from all those years ago is a nice instance to show how different cultures have more effective elements of enabling that innovation to occur than others. And Germany on that front came out very well because of its idea of having worker boards, what's called office right boards, parallel mm. to the overall management of the, the company board, where the stakeholders had a role as well as the shareholders. It doesn't matter if was, companies aren't employing people anymore, though, does it? I mean, well, yeah, that's, that's, the, that, that's the other thing. If we get to the stage where capitalism doesn't give jobs to virtually anyone except uh, the, the skilled workers in designing technology or operating it, if we're sort of talking about, you know, we have to take off production off, off planet in the next one century, at that point, the, the state has to be the income distribution to generate the mass market. Right. Until it does that, you know, we're going to have the, the wealth concentrating more in the hands of a few. We're going to get more protests like we're seeing right now. They're, they're only going to get worse, surely. And then uh, and then if we've got regimes which become more authoritarian, as they see that's the only way to cope with it, as we're perhaps seeing in France, uh, then that, uh, that, that availability of data is going to make it easier for those uh, those nations to become more authoritarian as well. It's not a very pretty when you picture. Have drones and, and mm. face ID and stuff like that. Yeah. So we, we, it is not a simple case of pure market for capitalism versus socialism. You do need to craft a mixed society. And and given the tendency, the trend, trend in capitalism now that we can produce so much without labour and therefore making 90% or 95% of the population unnecessary, uh, you have the two choices, the Hunger Games or some redistribution system, which still enables the part of the population that innovates to be able to do that. It may even be a more creative society than the one we're in right now mm. if we actually enable that. We've got to, we certainly have to have an income where, the, where, where, where a basic income is provided for everyone, regardless of whether you work or not. And that's one reason, that even though most of my uh, colleagues in mainstream economics are fans of a job guarantee. I'm more inclined towards a universal basic income just to mean that everybody gets enough to live and live moderately comfortably. But if you want to do extremely well, you can get out there and do some capitalist innovation. Mm. We're going to make sure it doesn't cause the the, the uh, global economy to overheat, the, the global environment to overheat. There are all these issues that so we, we need to advise, devise a mixed system. And again, one of the main barriers that are happening is mainstream economic thinking. Steve Keane, you're talking socialism again, you raving Marxist. Yeah, lefty <laughs> capitalist, there I am. All right, good to talk. We'll catch you again very soon. Thank you. Okay, Matt. And there we go. That's episode 134 of the Debunking Economics podcast. Back again with another one next week, episode 135, strangely enough. I'm Phil Dobby. Steve Keen will be back as well next week. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com. 
to listen.